Well, good morning. I'm Megan Dobraz, Pastor of Adult Ministries here. Join me in a word of prayer as we start this part. Lord God, we come before you talking about relationships and knowing that our world is super broken as we hold uh, yesterday's tragedy and knowing that that tragedy is experienced different uh, in our midst today from with different folks. And so, Lord, I pray that we would hold that well, uh, that we would look to you for not only repair, but steps of action uh, where racism is alive and it is alive in our whole country, Lord. And so show us what that looks like to engage with and how to protect our brothers and sisters of color. In your name, amen. Oh, hi. Today we are continuing in our sermon series, Invitation to Wholeness, where we're seeking to look at the key invitations of Christ to his people, the invitation to um, have our identity rooted in him, which is what we talked about last week. Eric mentioned that already. The invitation to generosity, justice, service, these foundational aspects of our faith. Uh, Each week's topic gives us a chance to reflect and consider where we're at as individuals, as a collective and then make some space to either celebrate or tweak where God might be inviting us in a specific way to live into that invitation right now. We're all on this journey of faith, uh, and there's no right place to be. Uh, The goal in this is to make space to check in and listen to God on these essential topics. Sometimes we'll get concrete next steps, and sometimes we'll, this will just be one of a bunch of conversations before it's clear what God is doing or asking of us. Uh, either way, the series, again, is this place to touch base and remind us of who we're invited to be in Christ. Today, we're considering the invitation to wholeness in relationships. When you hear the word relationships, what immediately comes to mind? Maybe it's romantic relationships, friendships, relationships with your family members, coworkers, or maybe you kind of think at a more global level that it's how you interact with all humans. The good news is that all of you would be right. And who doesn't like being right? Today, we're talking about all types of relationships. Those folks that you know, those folks you know well, folks that you spend time with, those who drive you crazy, those who pass on, you pass on the street, whether you interact with them or not, And everyone in between, because Jesus gives us both a very specific invitation and example after example of how to be in relationship, how to interact with others. I'm really, really into this Netflix show about Formula One driving. Uh, And I've recently learned that this flag can mean a bunch of different things. If it's single and stationary, the yellow flag means that you can't pass because there's danger near the track. If it's single and waving, it means you can't pass because of danger near the track and you need to slow down. If there's two of them, if it's double and waving, you can't pass because the track is blocked and you need to slow down. As we list the type of relationships that we're considering today, which is all of them, and that we're, and that we're gonna talk about them, one version of this yellow flag may begin waving inside of you, maybe even the double one. Caution, slow down, there's danger near this track. I would venture that for almost every single one of us in the room, this is true to some extent. Relationships can be complex and have been life-sustaining and agonizing. 
whether it's a relationship that's complex because of actions done by or toward us, complex because of dynamics, circumstances, history, or many other factors, some relationships can be complex, but all relationships are nuanced. We as humans share a lot of overlap in parts of our relational experiences and can speak into each other's lives with a level of understanding and compassion. And yet, where you're at is unique to you, as is the timeline and the actions that will be taken. So if a version of a yellow flag is happening inside of you, I'd invite you to take a moment and notice it and rest assured that you're in good company. There's both understanding in this room and there's the merciful presence of God who comes without judgment and condemnation. Some relationships can be complex. All of them are nuanced. So let's start by looking at this 50,000 foot level when we talk about relationships. What do we know about how God tells us to interact with others, relationships with others? I really, I honestly don't mean this as a rhetorical question. I'm asking you right now, how does scripture tell us to interact with each other? I mean, the sermons on relationships, we got to interact just a tiny bit. Love each other. Any, would anybody add anything to that? It's kind of this encompassing thing, right? Love is, oh gosh, you startled me actually. Oh. No, I got, you've talked a lot today, so I'm good from you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love Nathan deeply. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have pushed that button. Um, I will apologize for that later. Uh, there are innumerable scriptures that speak to love being the way that we should interact with each other. That was not a good example of one. But there are, we should do it. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, the whole chapter is about love. A portion of it reads, verses 1 to 3, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. It goes on to give us a detailed, though still these big picture um, ways that love manifests itself to look like. So it looks like patience, kindness, self-control, a resiliency to keep loving because as verse two and three are pretty blunt in saying, without love, we're nothing. We gain nothing. Continuing, we look at Matthew twenty two thirty seven to 40. A Pharisee comes and asks Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The gospels record Jesus being asked 183 questions. He directly answers three of them. This is one of them. So I think it's probably worth underlining in our Bibles, paying attention, love God, love your neighbor. Or we can look again at the first John passage that Nathan read so beautifully. It's reiterated to say that love is not only the basis for why Jesus lived among us and died for our sins, but also our love is the marker of God's love in us. 
So that passage goes on to say in verses 19 to 21, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is how serious God is about the importance of love being the core of our interactions with each other. Without it, we, I, you have nothing. It's the reflection of God's love in us and a reflection of whether we've received God's love. And it applies to our interactions with anyone, our metaphorical and actual neighbor, brother, sister. The emphasis is clear and consistent, and it's all encased in God's commitment to us. Jesus is the creator of love. Sorry, God is the creator of love. Jesus is the embodiment of it. So while love can be warm and fuzzy, and we love it when it is, the primary focus of our conversation today is that love is God's essential nature and his invitation to how we are to be in relationship with others. I would posit that as God's essential nature, love is, and therefore it's, it is love, and it's therefore key to who the identity of the triune God is. And therefore, that's a really big part of the image of God that we hold as humans. That image of God that was placed in us in creation, Genesis 127, which is to say that you can't help but be a reflection of God's love just in your very existence. So that no matter how well we think we're loving others right now, and we'll keep talking about that, our existence is a reflection of the love of God that he has for each one of us. Our mere existence reflects love. This essential nature of God is imprinted on us. And there's a desire for love that's so great in each one of our body, soul, and spirit that it longs for actions that are based in love. Yet we're surrounded on all levels in every aspect of our life with interactions that are not based in love. And those intera- those, uh, that environment really affects us. Story after story, like we are living in right now, of acts of hate against people for the dark color of their skin or the shape of their features. Sexual misconduct, companies leveraging a war to make money and people in our city without the resources they need. Those are just some of the systemic ways that there is a growth opportunity for love in our world, in our country and city right now. It's everywhere. It can be overwhelming and threaten to jade us or lower the bar regarding our invitation to relationships. So where do we start? As every good therapist tells their clients, we can't control others. We can only control ourselves. So we'll start there. What are the areas that we could relate to others in in more love? That we have some room to grow, change, open our hearts a little bit more. I uh, have a nemesis. I realize that I'm not a middle schooler, no offense. I'm actually not even a superhero. In fact, I'm a relatively adjusted grown woman, and yet I have a nemesis. Uh, I'm certainly not proud of it. It's an area of discipleship and one that God is working in me. I would like to say that it is against systems of oppression or poor environmental stewardship or even whales in captivity, because I feel very strongly about all of those things, but it's actually a person. 
I don't think this person knows that they bother me at this very deep level, but because of the way life works, I'm forced to interact with this person who I am easily annoyed and therefore do not tend to first offer grace and understanding. In fact, when I know I'm going to see them, I will spend my distance going to the space that they are at, pep-talking myself and praying that I would be patient and kind, that I would not say the first or even the second thing that comes to my mind, that I would let the way they interact with the world be none of my business. And then I see them, and I don't often live into that hope that I have for myself. The only good thing about this story is that they don't know that I'm a Christian and they don't know that I'm a pastor. When they asked me what I do for a living, I literally said, oh, this and that. When they understandably asked a follow-up question, I said, I do a lot of things on the computer, which is not untrue. And then I got out of the conversation as fast as I could. Again, I'm not proud of this. I wish it were not so. It is of regular conversations with my friends and the Lord. I only tell you this because love has several growth opportunities in all of us. If interacting with love is a foundation of our faith, if it's what our bodies and souls long for, if it's how we're wired, why is it so hard, so inconsistent or elusive? And how can we foster more of it? The three ways of love that we'll consider today, loving with presence over distance, loving with curiosity over judgment, and loving with input metrics over results. Before we look at these, I think it's important to note that these are just guidelines to grow in healthy expressions of love, that they're still kind of relatively at a high level. I'm trusting that if you ask the Spirit or invite others, your community, which could include some of us, that you'll get a next step in what the nuance of these look like in your life right now, what God might be inviting you to. That said, never is abuse or neglect loving. And never is the loving thing to do to stay in proximity to those situations. If that's a situation you currently find yourself in, we really do want to be a part of that with you, in it with you. You can let us know in any way that feels comfortable for you, telling a prayer team member afterwards, writing on the connect card, whatever works for you. We'd want to be with you in it. But we get it. Love is complex. Not only is the expression of it ever-changing, but what it can look like in one situation looks like the opposite in another situation. Your love for one person might be expressed very differently from how you love another, and there's even change within that particular relationship due to how their story is unfolding and equally how our story is unfolding. Love is wrapped in particularity. So with all that as a preamble, let's consider these things together. Love with, a, with loving with presence over distance. Love is magnified as it draws near. It comes closer. Closer means more connection. Whether it's an emotional, in an emotional way or a physical one, love moves us toward people. Matthew chapters eight and nine has Jesus like healing folks all over the place with one exception of the centurion servant who Jesus heals from afar just by saying he will be healed. Jesus is present for the healings. And for many of them, there's a physical component to the healing. A touch, one hand on top of another. The bleeding woman touching his cloak as he passes. In chapter nine, a man named Jairus comes to ask Jesus to heal his sick daughter. And while he's running this errand to find Jesus, Jairus's daughter dies. Everybody knows that she has passed away, but Jesus still goes to the house where he raises her to life, spoiler, sorry. 
But Jesus goes, he touches, he's with. There's often a physical aspect to loving someone. We see in these two chapters of Matthew that the physical aspect isn't just limited to those folks that Jesus knows well. He comes close, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, who's a friend, but he also heals countless people that he doesn't know at all. He meets in passing, some of whom are marginalized in society due to their illness, leprosy, bleeding, being filled with demons. None of that stops Jesus from being present with them. Some of us might still be getting used to that idea of being close to each other, being physically next to each other. As the last two and a half years, we've been intentionally staying away from each other so as not to be physically harmed or cause physical harm because of COVID. But long before COVID, the response of moving toward others had some room to grow in our society, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. As a culture, being present with folks is not part of our reputation. Decades ago, I was living with one of my best friends who still is one of my best friends. And for several weeks, there was a rumor of layoffs at her job. And since she was one of the first ones hired, she thought that she might be one of the first to go. Sure enough, she finds out that she'll stay for another eight weeks or so, but won't have a contract in the new year. She gets home. I'm not there. I'm actually out at a standing happy hour with a bunch of our friends And she texts me and lets me know, I lost my job today and I'm devastated. I'm so sorry for her. I feel terrible for her. I write back, I'm so sorry to hear this. You're amazing. I know for a fact something will work out. And I go back to hanging out with our friends who at this time in my life, I got to see multiple times a week. About 20 minutes later, she writes back and says, I need you to come home. In the moment, I'm caught off guard and therefore sort of irritated by this. I'm having a great time with our friends. We thought these layoffs might be coming anyway. But since she's never asked me to come home before, I think I should probably go. And what I find when I get there, many of you probably can guess, she's a mess. But in in the sense that this very sad, tragic thing has just happened in her life and, and she just needs someone to be with her in it. This is an example of what Brene Brown identifies as empathy versus sympathy. Sympathy itself is not unloving, but it allows us to stay at a distance and as a result has far less of an impact. We can yell across the room, hey, let me know if you need anything. Or we can cross the room and say, you're not alone. Crossing the room, being present, expresses love through connection. And as Brene Brown goes on to say, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. We might have the best solutions and there may be a space for those later, but often what's needed is being present. But loving with our presence is not free. It will cost us something. You may have to be interrupted inconvenienced. It may invite you into your own pain on a particular topic, and it very well may break your heart if the relationship changes or ends. But we love greater with our presence. Where are the places that we create distance when presence is needed? Those places that we text instead of call, where we don't answer the phone because we're just about to not going to an event that we're invited to because of this or that reason or saying, which is classic here in Seattle, let's grab a walk or coffee and then just never following up. I get it. 
boundaries are necessary and we're busy, important, and we know a lot of people, but we also have some room to grow in how we love with our presence. So how can you love better, love more with your presence in this season? It might still be from a proximity or geographical distance, but who is God calling you to move closer to? And how is he calling you to do that? Is it someone from inside your circle? Is it someone on the rough outside of your circle? Is it a people group? Is it maybe all of them? Loving with presence over distance. Second, loving with curiosity over judgment. In John 9, Jesus and his disciples encounter a man born blind, and the disciples ask, Who sinned, this man or his parents? Essentially, they're asking, Whose fault is this? And Jesus answers, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What the works of God displayed in him means is a, uh, is a question to be considered another time. But for today, we see that while the disciples are asking, who can we blame? Who's going to get our judgment? Jesus is saying, there's more going on here than you know. There's more than you can see. A much bigger story is playing itself out. There's always a larger story that we can't see that's unfolding and being written. And that's true for all parties involved. Everyone brings into their interaction their own story and experiences, some of which are our strengths, those things that help craft the delightfulness in us as human beings, and some of which are growth areas, some of which we know, and some of which God in his mercy has not yet revealed for us to work on. And this is happening in an iterative form for everyone in the room. Our stories and experiences and interacting with others' stories and experiences. Judgment makes it really easy to write a story and come to a conclusion. And usually it's one that makes us look good, teaches the other person a lesson, or when we're feeling really magnanimous is the best thing for society. COVID has revealed our tendency towards judgment as a people group in a tragically sad way. All over the board, regionally and individually, we've not only decided who's an idiot and who's not, but then we've told others that they're idiots. Maybe in a social media post, maybe in a direct email or with an unnecessarily long honk, maybe with indifference or distance, or maybe in some other creative, passive-aggressive way. But once we've decided that someone is wrong, it's usually pretty difficult for us to hide that conclusion for very long. No one is saying that we should just sit back, not interact with the problems of the world, or that what happened to someone, the culture that they've grown up in, or what they know or don't know is an excuse for poor behavior. But rather, it's very clear that we as a society that's made up of a whole bunch of individuals have had an uptick in judgment of one another rather than curiosity about one another. We see the results of this judgment already. There is increased polarization, cancel culture, weaponizing our differences. Again, be they people we know, kind of know, or just those across the world. Curiosity allows space to ask some questions and to learn from these interactions and move closer to each other. And as the gift that keeps on giving, it's not only questions about what's happened to this other person, that they are the way they are, or they're doing what they're doing, but also what's happening in us that we're reacting this way. What are we afraid of? What buttons are being pushed? 
Why do we feel a sense of danger? And, and what are we protecting ourselves from? There's no question that many of our reactions are in response to some painful parts of our own stories being triggered. This is truly a rhetorical question. How many times in the recent past were you surprised at your actions in a less than desirable way? You can kind of think about that for a second, where you could not believe what just came out of your mouth. Or you had to do a little gymnastics to justify why you did what you did. Or that you didn't do or say anything, but you know what your heart was reflecting, how hard it was or how mean it was being. What's happening here? What's happening in us? Any of those places in us where we're doing our own version of judgment, writing the story of the other person, responding in defensiveness, cutting people out of our lives, might deserve some space to reflect on how God might be inviting us to love through curiosity. As we talked about earlier, the Gospels record Jesus being asked 183 questions, directly answering answering three, and asking 307. Jesus was very curious. As I was working through the sermon this week, I end up in a space with another, one of my best friends, a whole bunch of other people, and my nemesis. My friend casually asks me in a way that no one hears because they're not listening. No one's listening about how the sermon writing is coming. And I say rather exasperatedly, it's on relationships. And and I I give the eye that every friend immediately knows what you mean. I say, I'm living my sermon right now. Ask me next week how it's going. Then during our shared time together, I had the space to reflect in real time. What is happening here? What judgments or conclusions have I made about this person? And why does this one person bother me so much? By creating the space to consider what's going on, not only do we get a chance to love better, which lives into this invitation to wholeness, but also it gives us a chance to look at and potentially rewrite our own story. Those places where harm done to us drives us towards judgment manifesting in fear or protection or hypervigilant. There's space to consider if this is a present story being lived out or if this is an old one that doesn't fit anymore. Where is the space for some curiosity in your relationships? With yourself, with others, with somebody kind of distance, with a people group, loving with curiosity, over judgment. So loving with input metrics, finally, and uh, over results. Just to kind of make sure we're all on the same page about at least what I mean about input metrics. Input metrics refer to behavior or action taken, what's done, as opposed to output metrics, which refer to results. An input metric, what I can do, might be call 30 friends a day. An output metric, what I hope happens, might be become famous. These are obviously intentionally exaggerated examples, though I do think the two might relate to each other. But input metrics are the things done, the action taken, like what's put in those things that are thoughtfully considered. And the hope of an input metric is to be moving in the direction of the goal. So in this case, toward health and relationship. The reason that we would love with input metrics over results would be because they're actually the only thing that we have control over. The only thing we can do is thoughtfully consider how we want to love with intentionality. We have no control over the results. 
Loving with input metrics and intentionality is the example given to us through Jesus. Referring again to this first John 4 passage, now looking at uh, verses 9 and 10, the two right before what Nathan read so wonderfully, uh, is this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loved and actively loves us today through input metrics. He didn't send Jesus so that we would love him or because he knew that some of us would. He doesn't love us now because we're constantly making proud, making him proud or going to take care of him when he gets old. His love of us is about who he is and who he is, is a being that gives this love to everyone. Matthew 5, 45 says, he, God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. There's no favoritism in God's love. His love is about who he is, not what he's gonna get in return. For us to love this way, focused on what we want to give one another out of the abundant love that we've been given by Christ and by others, means a surrendering of any demands that we would have about what the results of love would look like. In some ways, if we're measuring how we're loving based on how we're loving, not based on uh, what's coming of it, there's, there's actually tremendous freedom that comes out of that. To not hold the responsibility of how it's gonna work out in the end. We can just do our very important part, which is considering who and how we love. But to surrender those expectations means feelings of grief, of things that aren't in our control, not working out as we wanted them to. It means looking at the people that we would give anything for and knowing that all we can give, the best gift we have to give is our love. And they're going to do with it what they want. If we follow this a little bit further, we face the seasonality of love, that there are seasons where love will manifest in different ways in different intensity and how it's received in, in different, uh, different times and in other times. Again, some of that's based on circumstances, but it's also based on the unfolding of our stories, the work we've done around the places we've been hurt to both give and receive love and the intentionality we've given people uh, that we have and we're trying to love. To accept this is to accept that there's a temporality to our relationships. Some of our relationships won't last forever, even if we want them to. Our love is, or our relationships are temporal, but our love is eternal. It keeps paying dividends beyond what we can see. In the same way that we can't see the whole story, so sometimes we jump to judgment, we also can't see the whole story regarding the effects of our love. There's a person out in the world who in some regard is loving a little bit better because of how you've loved someone else. There's a good chance that you have no idea you've impacted them or that your name is written upstream in their life. Whether it's someone you've loved directly or someone you've loved who then turns and loves another, or it's just a passerby who witnessed our love. Love is eternal. Recently, I was at a 65-year-old birthday party and one of the guests had been friends with the person whose birthday it was since college. So they'd been friends for roughly 45 years. Uh, Throughout the evening, we were all offering toasts to this person. And when the friend from college goes to go, she mentions the seasons of their friendship. 
uh, that there had been uh, times when they were closer, times when they were more distant. And then she kind of starts listing all of the things in their life that they had gone through together. It was very clear that there had been decades of life lived with each other and love shared. And then she closes her toast, not by saying to the birthday person, but to all of us at the party, stay in the ring. As I've been thinking about this nemesis or my nemesis this week in light of this sermon, so not focusing on all the things that I find irritating, but trying to think about it in this idea of love, that encouragement keeps echoing in my mind. Stay in the ring. Keep showing up. Keep trying to figure out what's going on in you and what's going on in this person. Keep being curious about them. And hopefully in the good way, there'll be a seasonality to this and it will help me to be a loving person for years to come. We are in a season where it takes great wisdom to know how to love well. We have a lot of examples from Jesus of what we're called to and how to do that, but it will take discernment to know what it might look like in our lives right now. It might look a lot different than what we expect, but my prayer for us is that we would be people who stay in the ring, who are actively trying with intentionality to be more loving, who are pushing against the toxic parts of our culture, our nation, and even in ourselves. Uh, today, when you came in, you got a bulletin. There's a card in there, and we've been doing this throughout the series. You can use this response card to write. There's a space on the on the very top that says, "What's the you know the prompt, the question?" And the question is, "Who or how can I love in this season?" And I would encourage you to ask the Lord and let the answer be anything. Someone you know, someone you don't know, someone you kind of know, a people group, anyone where you know your heart has some, some room to grow in love. And then there's that space that says next step. And if you have a next step now, great, write it in. If you don't and you want to ask the Lord, keep that card handy because he will let you know what a next step would look like. Join me in prayer. Lord God, we come before you wanting to be people who give and receive love well. Lord, show us how to do that. Show us to be a collective of individuals who do in your power and with your wisdom and direction, make a difference in this world. That Lord, there would be a little bit light and there would be a lot more love upstream and downstream because of who we are right now. In your name, amen.